If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 8. In Psalm 6, the psalmist says, My soul, O Lord, is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Verse 1. Verse 2 echoes the same thing. How long will my enemies be exalted over me? Psalm 35, how long, O Lord, will you look on? Psalm 62, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Psalm 74, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Psalm 79, how long, O Lord? Psalm 82, how long will you judge unjustly? And show partiality to the wicked. Psalm 89. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Psalm 90. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Psalm 94. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Psalm 119. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Over and over and over and over and over, 13 plus times, the psalmist asks, what are you doing, God? How long? How long do your people have to endure this? How long will you remain silent? How long will we suffer? How long before you rise up against your enemies? You tell us to pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How long? Do we have to wait for that? And we don't have the answer as to how long we have to wait for God to move. Jesus said even he did not know. That was reserved knowledge for his Father in heaven. So we don't know how long, but we do know how. We do know how he's going to answer the prayers of his servants. We know how he's going to answer the prayers of his saints. And over and over and over, over the timeless ages from for the last 2,000 plus years, even more than that, counting the Old Testament, all those years, all those centuries, saints have lifted up their prayers to God saying, God, how long will we suffer under the hand of evil? How long, oh God, do we have to wait for you to move? And his answer comes in Revelation 8. In trumpet blast. And as we see these trumpets blasting from heaven, we kind of hear in the background the cry of the martyrs there in Revelation 6, this prayer that was already lifted up. The, the blood of the martyrs there screams out from underneath the throne of God. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge those who dwell Avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. We're going to see today that our prayers matter. The prayers of God's people matter in ways that before I spent time preparing and working through Revelation chapter 8 and through many other passages in the book, this is a reality that, you know, I guess we know it in our head, but when we see it in this way as we do here in Revelation 8, That our prayers go up to heaven and one day God's answer is going to thunder down. Thunder down. 
in a way that will cause kings and princes and slave and free and all mankind who are not sealed by God. They're going to ask for the mountains to fall on them, to, to guard them and hide them from the wrath. That's that's what's going to happen here. So if you let's just go back and kind of review for just a second. OK, so if you want to kind of flip back through your Bible and just, you know, go back through in Revelation as we've kind of worked our way through the, the chapters so far, we've seen this this picture of Jesus standing there in, in, in chapter one. John saw this vision of the son of man. And God just, even there, Jesus gives him and us this word, fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Don't let that phrase ever escape our minds, church. He has the keys. Okay. He is in control. Chapters two and three are these letters to the churches, these letters to those congregations there. But it's a timeless letter to our congregation here. And then in Revelation 4 and 5, we see in chapter 4 the, the God of creation being worshipped by this host in heaven. You're worthy, O Lord. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Then in chapter 5, the Lamb who was slain. John, John hears about the line of the tribe of Judah, and he looks and he sees the Lamb who is standing as though it had been slain. And this Lamb is worthy to receive power and wisdom and wealth and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the Lamb comes and takes a scroll that's held in the hand of Almighty God because He alone is worthy to take that scrolls, that scroll. And as He does, the seven elders and all the host of heaven fall down and worship. And then He begins to unseal it in chapter 6, one at a time. And those first four, remember, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, which we will see later on, all those are kind of grouped in the same way. The first four come together, and then there's an interlude, and then the next two come, and then there's an interlude, and then there's the last one. So these first four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There was this, as I understand it, it was this picture of, of false peace, of, of being deceived. There was this picture of war, there's this picture of famine, and there's a picture of bloodshed and death. And then the question comes, well, who can stand in light of this? On that great day, it says there in the last part of chapter 6, who can stand? And chapter 7 answers that. It's, it's, it's answered by this, this tribe, this, this picture of the tribes of Israel and this, this mass of people that no one can number in chapter 6. And they're all sealed by God. They're sealed by the Lamb. They're sealed as, as possessions of God. They belong to Him. And so after that interlude, then we come to chapter 8. And there's a transition here, okay? So the eighth seal is unsealed, the seventh seal is unsealed, and it leads right into these seven trumpets. Let's look at it, okay? So let's look at Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with, golden, with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, 
and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light became darkened, and a third of the day became, might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets, the three angels are about to blow. Let's pray. We need to hear you, Lord. We need to hear from you. We need to see you. The noise of this world, the bells and whistles of our culture, the siren cry of a godless world calls out to us, God, and we need to Keep our eyes fixed on you. We need to hear you. Lord, we're uncomfortable with silence. Those last few seconds. Lord, they're kind of weird. We're so used to noise. So, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd quieten each heart this morning so that that heart can hear you. Quieten the heart of our church. So we can rest in you. Lord, what we see coming before us is a is a great day. It's a terrible day. So help us see it rightly, understand it as we should. We don't get all the details and I'm not sure we even need to, Lord. Just help us understand what you would want us to see and hear from this. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, it's interesting that John, taking this apocalyptic vision, okay, remember that that's, that's, that's one of the forms of Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. It's weird. It's strange, okay? 
What makes Revelation so unique is it's, it's an epistle. It's read, okay? I, I think very clearly that those first churches that received this letter from John heard it read to them in its entirety. And I encourage you to read through the book of Revelation in one sitting. Read through it and just get the big picture of what's going on. It's a letter, but it's also a prophecy. It's a picture of, of what God intends to do. And it's also apocalyptic in that it, it is in times. It is this picture of God's coming judgment and movement, bringing this world to a consummation and creating a new heavens and a new earth. And it needs to be interpreted that way. We need to understand this is not science. That's not the point of it. It is, it is to understand this as we can, what it is that God is about to do. Let all the earth keep silent. The judge of all the earth is on the throne. And that's, that's kind of where it starts in verse 8. And John, before we hear and see these trumpets, we hear nothing. And those little pauses, even just like that, leave some of us very uncomfortable, doesn't it? We... We're noisy people. We, we won't, some of us can't even sleep without background noise. And yet John here hears silence. And it's a temporal way of him describing what I think cannot be described. They don't keep time in heaven the way they do, right? Our, our, our watch won't mean anything there. But John describes it in a way that kind of lets us know it was lengthy. It, it, it seemed like half an hour to him, which seems like an eternity. And, and, and we're confronted with what he describes here as this silence in heaven and this place of constant worship, this place of constant praise, this, pay, this place where there's just peals, you know, just bell after bell, it seems, of, of worship coming all of a sudden. And Jonathan, I think you described it well. There's this silence that the prophets foretold. Zephaniah, be silent before the Lord. Zechariah, be silent all flesh. Even Paul in Romans 3 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. I was reading a couple of weeks ago the, you know, the, the, the trial that went on for the, for the police officer. And, and how literally thousands of people waited for that sentence to come down, for that verdict to come down. And what was unique about that was the first reporter that, that I pulled up and, and saw wasn't the verdict. What they all talked about was the silence before the reading of the verdict. And we've kind of seen it, have we not? Maybe on TV dramas or something. Mr. Foreman of the jury, have you all reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. And it falls silent. As that note is passed from there to the judge. And the judge opens, and before he reads, you can hear a pin drop. There's this anticipation. There's fear from some, anxiousness from all. What is about to happen? 
I read this week that when co-founder Steve Jobs launched the first iPhone, he intentionally, during that introduction, introduced pauses into his sentences. And the silence, this writer said, makes us nervous. And so intentionally, Jobs spoke silence into his announcement. And everybody was on edge. What's he going to say next? What's... What's going on here? We're, un- we're uncomfortable with silence. And this silence here in heaven, it portends, okay? It warns of a seriousness that's about to happen. There's a gravity. There's an awe of God. There's an awful wrath that is about to unfold. So I think in this silence there is humility. I think in this silence there is a holy fear. I think in the silence there is a, a reverence. It's the reverence that Psalm 37, 7 says, be still. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. It's the same silence that Psalm 46, 10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. That is what Revelation 8 shows us. Be still, church. Be still, saints. God will be exalted in his judgment and in his salvation. They are two sides of the same coin. So this week, as you gather in your life groups, Jason has has put a question in there. and, And while it may not be a primary point of the passage, it's such a relevant point for us as American Christians on the on the on the importance of silence and solitude. I mean, crying out loud, we can't, we can't be away from the world, right? We, we're connected. We get dings and pings and vibrations. Some of you, 24 hours a day if you keep this thing beside your bed. We hate silence. We can't stand it. So silence and solitude, though, are spiritual disciplines. What are we confessing about ourselves when we can't stand silence? What are we confessing about God when we can't stand to be alone with him in silence? Good, good questions to consider. And then there's seven angels. The seven angels that are given these trumpets. And don't make any mistake about this. It's an important point. You could read right over it if you're not careful. They are given the trumpets. Everything that transpires in Revelation comes from heaven. It comes down from heaven. They're given these trumpets. And these seven angels are nameless to us. Now, Jewish literature names them. It's interesting. In, in Jewish literature, extra-biblical literature, these seven angels are named. Their names, according to this Jewish literature, are Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Seraquel, Gabriel, and Remiel. Now, what's significant about those names is that each one of them end in E-L, which is a Hebrew lettering for God. So there's clearly a close connection between these seven unnamed in our Bible, although we do know two archangels, right? Gabriel and Michael. So the point is these angels are, are there and they are, as all the angels are, all the heavenly angels are in Revelation, they are agents of God's work. They're carrying out. Carrying out his salvation, carrying out his judgment. So let all the saints be silent. God is on his throne. 
Let all the saints be encouraged, secondly. The prayers of God's suffering saints will be, anx- will be answered. Look at verse 3. This other angel comes, a sep- a, an eighth one. And he stands before the altar of gold with a golden censer. Now, we don't use censers in, in our church. We don't use censers probably in most Southern Baptist churches. I don't know that for sure. But a censer is just a, a metal orb of some kind with holes in it. Incense and coals are put in there. You might see a priest swinging that and the smoke of that coming out. That's a censer. It's holding the incense, holding these, these coals. So this angel is given a censer. And he's given incense from God or from someone there. And it's added to the prayers of the saints on this golden altar before the throne. And it says the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So here's this picture of of worship there in heaven. Yes, but more than that, of, of the prayers of God's people ascending up before God. Now, there is in the in the tabernacle. And in the temple, an altar of incense. But remember, the writer of Hebrews tells us that what we see in these earthly places of worship is a picture of a spiritual reality. Heaven's not planned according to what's here. What's here is planned and built according to what's there. So, in Exodus 30, we have this description of this furniture that's in the, in the, in the tabernacle. And one of those pieces of furniture outside the Holy Holies, the Holy of Holies, along with the lampstand and the table of showbread is the, the table of incense. And just like the table of, of showbread and the table um, and the lampstand, there's, they're made of gold and acacia wood. They're, they're precious and they're outfitted with poles so they can, can be carried properly. God cared about every aspect of worship, every detail. Now, what's different, though... And I've really appreciated a couple of commentaries bringing this out is that the lampstand and the table of showbread, they kind of serve as illustrations of what God does for his people. He gives us bread. He gives us light. The the table of incense is more of a picture of what God's people do for him. In that we serve him and worship him with our prayers. It's the work of prayer. Psalm 141, 2 makes this connection complete, makes it directly. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Earlier in Revelation 5, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which John tells us are the prayers of the saints. I appreciated what, what table talk. Uh, the daily devotional that comes from Ligonier Ministry said about this. It, it, talking about the, the prayers of the saints being mixed with the incense. And the writer said, this makes sense when we consider the Old Testament altar of incense. Think about it a second. Fine spices were mixed together and left to smolder on the altar day and night. And the ascending smoke symbolizing what was offered as it went up to God, much as our prayers go up to him. But being outside the veil, the priest would see the smoke penetrate the curtain into the Holy of Holies, even though he could not see past the curtain. And is that not like prayer in that we know our prayers enter heaven itself, even though we cannot yet see into that place? Well, through the vision of John, we can see into that place, at least this understanding that we have there. And so this other angel is involved in this work of prayer. Now, let me point this out. I do not believe for a second this teaches us about the mechanics of prayer in this sense. I don't believe our prayers go to angels. Right? 
We don't pray to angels. Don't ever pray to an angel. Don't even pray to the saints. We pray to Jesus. Jesus alone is our high priest. He is the one who is faithful and just. He is the one whose flesh itself was the veil that goes into the Holy of Holies, the writer of Hebrews says. And because of our high priest Jesus, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy and help that we need. So like angels, like all of God's angels, they're used to carry out his will. And sometimes in some mysterious way, they're used in this sense. But we don't pray to them. Our prayers go up to him. And we need to be encouraged that those prayers go up and those prayers are heard. And the seven trumpets that we see coming next, the wrath of God against sinners on earth. Here's the amazing thing, church. They are a direct answer to the prayers of the saints. That's the picture. These coals from the altar where these where these prayers have been gathered, these coals are gathered up and then cast back down to heaven. The answer to prayer comes in the judgment of God. And the judgment of God seems to come as a result of the prayers. It's astounding how the mystery of this all fits together. Now, just think about this for a second. The scroll that was handed to Jesus, the scroll that was handed to the Lamb, we saw was just this unfolding plans and purposes of God. And only Jesus has the authority to unseal it. He is absolutely sovereign. What God has purposed and decreed will take place, right? Well, if you're thinking, you ought to think, well, then what's the point of praying? If it's decreed, it's done. If he's sovereign, then why? Why why should I pray? And I think God answers that question throughout Scripture, but I think he answers it here in Revelation 8, even in this this little, little paragraph here. We see this view of our prayers being offered up to God and his eternal decrees being moved along by those prayers. It's, it's mysterious. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to see. God has decreed what will take place, but he has also decreed the means by which it will take place. And one of those means by which it will take place is the prayers of his people. So is he sovereign or is it our prayers? Yes. It's both. He, he, he purposes both of those things. He door, he's ordained the end and he's ordained how we get there. And one of the ways that we get there is through the prayers of his people. And I think that's what we see here. There's a type of prayer that we don't talk about much. It's lots of times. I mean, we'll talk about intercessory prayer. We'll talk about confessional prayer. We'll talk about praise. One of the phrases, one of the types of prayer that we don't talk about much is, is, is called imprecatory prayer. The imprecatory prayers, the imprecatory psalms, these are psalms in the Old Testament that basically call on God to crush his enemies. I mean, David prays for God to break the teeth in their mouth. All right? Some of David's prayers are pretty brutal in what he's asking God to come down and do to the enemies. I mean, even in Matthew 23, Jesus declared woes on the Pharisees. And there's a place in Scripture where we see the people of God calling on God to judge the enemies of God and to judge the enemies of God's people. Now, we need to understand something real clearly here, church. This side of these seven trumpets, this side of of God's judgment, we are called to pray, yes, 
And we are called to pray. We're commanded to pray. We're invited to pray. And we trust God to move and work. And he's going to move and work through the prayers of his people. I mean, just remember, we don't have because we don't ask. And I think God knows what we need, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He knows. But James is clear on that. We don't have because we don't ask. And oftentimes we ask amiss. But as we see these imprecatory psalms and these imprecatory prayers calling on God to come down and crush those enemies of God, we understand that this side of judgment, this side of that great day that's coming, we pray for God's kingdom to come and we pray for God's will to be done in the lives of our enemies. So, God, I'm praying for you to bring that terrorist to Jesus or put him down. God, those enemies that are that are coming against your church in Central Asia and in Russia, Lord, let the light of Christ shine there. Let us pray and give and go so that those unreached people groups can hear the good news of Jesus. But God, come against them if they refuse that grace and will still stand against you in rebellion. Paul is clear. He says over in the book of Romans that vengeance, in fact, just, just turn there. It's, it's good just to, to see it and remind ourselves of it in, 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 Romans, in Romans chapter 12. He says in Romans twelve seventeen, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's two sides of how we're called to pray. And those prayers, I believe, are just just as powerful, ascending just as directly to the throne of God for the salvation of those that are lost, as well as for God to move and work in their lives in judgment if necessary. Okay, we can't pray one or the other. We're called to pray both. Uh, It's a vision that's burned in my brain. It will be from now until I see Jesus. From six years ago. And those 21 Coptic Christians were marched out on that beach by those ISIS cowards. And I call them cowards because they were clothed in black with veils over their faces. They were gutless. And they forced those Coptic Christians out there on the beach where the water would wash away their blood. Forced them to kneel and slit their throats and cut their heads off right there. And that was just 21 of... Many, many, many whole cities of Christians were ravaged by ISIS. So I ask you, what about the families of those 21? Were they praying for God to to deliver them? They'd been in captivity for like a month and a half already. Those 21 family members, they were praying for their sons and their dads and their brothers. They were praying for God to deliver them. They were praying for God to free them. They were praying for God to work and move. And then they see, we didn't see it on American TV. They saw it there. 
They saw those men's heads laying on the beach. Had God not answered their prayer? Had God ignored them? How long, oh God, will we see the blood of our families shed at the hands of these terrorists? The pastor of those families, the pastor of many of those men who were all part of the same congregation, the same church, they had left to go earn money to get work. Here's what the pastor said. In the month and a half when the people were kidnapped, the whole congregation was coming to the church to pray for their return. But in their prayers later on, he said, they asked that if they died, they would die for their faith. And that's what happened, he said. The congregation, he went on, is actually growing psychologically and spiritually. See, Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But he goes on there in the Beatitudes, I say, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For in so doing, he says, we prove to be sons of the Father who is in heaven. In Luke chapter 6, he says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. So that's, that's the point. Be encouraged, Christian. Our prayers are lifting up to God. And He is hearing them. And this side of that great day of judgment, our prayers for salvation and or for judgment, God hears. And one day the answer will be clear to all. Let the church be encouraged. Look at verse 6. Let the earth, all the earth, be warned. God's wrath on this fallen world is coming. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, it says. Now, as this seventh and final seal is opened, these seven angels are given seven trumpets. And, and the four blasts that follow in chapter 8 are God's judgment on the natural world. The three that follow are going to be God's judgment on humanity. But right here in this portion, it's, it's on the natural world. Now, I'll confess, and some of you may, may know this much about me, I'm, I'm somewhat of a tree hugger, okay? I really am. I love the outdoors. I don't like to see what environmental issues are going on around us. We can talk about the causes till the cows come home. But I don't like to see the spruce trees on the top of the Appalachian Mountains dying because of acid rain. And I don't like to see water bottles washing up on the beach when I go down there. I'm, I'm, I, I'm kind of a closet environmentalist in some ways. Now, I'm not crazy about it like some are. But I, I love this earth that God has created. It's one of my connection points to God. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know what mankind can and will do to the ecosystems of this world, but it is nothing compared to what is about to happen when God brings judgment on this fallen, cursed earth. And that's what we see in these four trumpets. It, it's such devastation on the ecology of the earth that we really can't fathom it. We can't. We can't understand it. 
Now, it is apocalyptic language. I'll say that again. Some argue, well, no, you know, here it says that all the grass was burned up. And then later on in the next trumpet that's going to come in the next section, it says not to hurt any of the grass. You know, John's, you know, John's conflicting himself. It's apocalyptic language. Okay. Look at that. Look at that. Look at all of them. These trumpet blasts that we hear should remind us of something. If, if, you're, if you've read your scriptures, it should remind us of the plagues in Egypt and another exodus. A different kind of exodus. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, during those, days, many of the, during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love that. The people groaned, and they prayed, and they prayed, and their groans were based on what? The promises of God. Their prayers are based on the promises of God. Greg Beale, in his commentary, says this. The ultimate person of the purpose of the plague signs was that Yahweh would be glorified. And even when God grants Pharaoh a change of heart so that he releases Israel, he hardens his heart again. And the result of the last act of hardening leads to the defeat of the Egyptians at the Red Sea, which results in the glory of God. And although the plagues are warnings for which Pharaoh will be held accountable if he does not heed them, they are ultimately intended as judgment. For not only has God foreknown and predicted Pharaoh's hard-hearted response, he has also caused it. Meditate on that. So Revelation is showing us this ultimate exit, this ultimate exodus. And this isn't just a nation that's being judged here, church. It's the whole earth. It's all of the earth. The wicked world system that rages against God and his people. Pharaoh and Egypt refused to repent. You know what's astounding? is If you'll look later on, over at the end of chapter 9, after these other trumpets are blown, and, and mankind has been devastated, literally hell comes on earth. Look what it says in 9 verse 20. The rest of mankind which were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or talk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Are you kidding me? The heavens fell, mankind was wiped out, and those who were left still did not repent. I get it. I get it. And so just as with Pharaoh in Egypt, Hamilton says this in his commentary, as it was with Pharaoh in Egypt, God is crushing the strong by worldly standards in order to deliver the weak by worldly standards. So... The cry of the martyrs, how long? We don't know how long, but we sure see how. We sure see how. Now, this earth is cursed. I think we understand that, do we not? Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground because of you, mankind, because of you, Adam and Eve. 
And through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. We were called to manage and steward this earth, and we blew it and still are. And this earth will be judged for our sin. It is cursed and it is groaning. It is subjected to futility, Paul says in Romans 8. And the whole creation is yearning for that bondage that comes with the redemption of the man. And that, and that is coming. Now, want, notice something in this. Eight, in, in chapter 8, you'll hear this 13 times. One-third, 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 one-third. What's the deal with the one-third? This is grace, church. I believe this is grace. This is God's warning. It is not as bad as it could be, and it is not yet as bad as it will be. So it's just one-third. And even though it's just one-third, nothing will escape this judgment. One writer said, whatever these images represent, the impact should rattle our bones in the awe of God. First trumpet, God's judgment on the earth. First angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. They were thrown upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. Now that little sentence right there at the end, I think it's talking about a third of the green grass was burned up in this. I mean, all the green grass was burned up in this third of the earth. Because later on there's going to be grass that's not burned up. But, you know, it's not that big of a deal to me. This is what the seventh plague was in Egypt, the hail that came and the fire and the blood. I don't, the, maybe the blood is symbolic. Maybe the blood is the people whose head are crushed because of the huge hailstones. I don't know. It's terrible. In Egypt, when the hail came, all the plants were killed. All the animals were killed. All the means of having food were killed and taken away. And here it comes. On a third of the earth. A third of the earth. The second trumpet is judgment on the seas. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain. Now notice it says something like a great mountain. Burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. In, in the scriptures, lots of times mountains represent kingdoms. Later on, the whole kingdom of Babylon will be Crushed. So I don't know, maybe this is symbolic of the world's powers being thrown into the sea. I don't, I don't know. The point is, this judgment that comes on the seas, on the salt water covering the earth, is devastating. A third of the creatures in the sea, all those whales, all those dolphins, all those creatures that are, that are endangered that we hear so much about. Bam! Gone. And all the ships that are on the sea, a third of those ships and those sailors are devastated. In the ancient times, especially in this culture, the sea was the means by which everything came. So it's this judgment of God on, on their lives, on their livelihoods, on, on everything that mattered to them. Judgment on the earth, judgment on the seas, judgment on fresh water. Look at verse 10 and 11. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many of the people died from the water because it had been made bitter. That's the first plague that came to Egypt there in the Nile River. Wormwood, this is the only place in the New Testament you'll find the word. But you find it eight times or so in the Old Testament. And every time it means bitterness. It means distress. 
It means death. It's not good. And here this apocalyptic vision of, of fresh water. Remember back when, when the four horsemen came and war and famine and economic desire, e- economic destitution were there and, and people were weighing out their food. Can you imagine what this will be? Buying a cup of water? Cleaning out your savings account so your throat can be quenched? I mean, we can't imagine this devastation. The fourth trumpet is judgment over the skies, the canopy over the earth, if you will. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, and a third of their light might be darkened, a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. I, I, don't, I don't get exactly how this is going to be, okay? Are the third of the stars removed? Or is just a third of their light blanketed out? Is a third of the sun going to be extinguished? Or just a third of its light blotted out. How's it going to be that things are going to be one third darker now then than they are now? I don't know. And we don't want to miss the point. Isaiah, I think, helps us understand this a little bit. Isaiah 13, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger. To make a land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Don't miss that sentence. Don't miss that point. Don't miss that purpose. To destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world, says God, for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Ezekiel said this in chapter 32. When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. The shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the sovereign Lord. I I do believe there is a symbolic picture here. I'm not saying this is symbolic, but there is pictures clearly throughout all of Scripture of the darkness that sin brings. The veil of darkness that is over the heart of the unbeliever. And the veil of darkness that our enemy would want to bring into this world. In in these next trumpets that will come, in trumpets 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see hell unleashed on earth. On humanity. And the darkness will come with it. Jesus himself talked about this. On earth there will be anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men men will faint from terror, apprehensive at what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. He says there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars. And all of this, don't miss this church, all of this comes down from the throne. It comes from the one who holds the scroll in his hands. What do we make of this? I think it's really pretty simple. I appreciate what David Platt said. Do not put your ultimate hope in created things. All things, even the most secure things like the light of the sun, all things in heaven and on earth are passing away. I spent a few hours on on the beach Friday down at Topsail. And I just kind of sat there and watched the waves come in. Just like they have come in for thousands of years. And will come in until. 
And then that tsunami that swept hundreds of thousands of people away in Asia will look like a pebble dropped into a puddle. Don't put your hope in the things of this earth. They will soon perish. Don't put your hope in the treasures that come out of the sea. It'll turn to blood. Don't your hope, put your hope in the mountains of man's power and cities and all that we feel like we're able to do. It will come crashing down, burning, crashing down. Grant Osborne, late great commentator, kind of summarized it this way. The purpose of the first four trumpet judgments is to disprove the earthly gods and to show that Yahweh alone is on the throne. By recapitulating the Egyptian plagues, God wants to make his omnipotence known to the world and to show the futility of turning against him. The four together prove that those who live only for this earth have chosen foolishly. For only in God is their true life. Earthly things turn on us. We dare not depend on them. Let all the earth be warned. Finally, let all of humanity be warned. What is this last verse? Verse 13. And then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. A talking eagle? No, a crying eagle. Crying out three woes for each of the three trumpet blasts that are about to come. And again, a word of warning, this time to humanity itself. Pay attention to what is about to come. Pay attention to what is about to unfold. And we will see that in these next. Let me give you three points of application. Three things just to consider. First, today, if you've never trusted in Christ, there is this day coming. It is coming. And while we may not understand all the details, here's the deal. It's not here yet. Which means today is a day of grace. Today is a day when you can turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And you need to trust in the one who holds the scroll in his hands. And who is orchestrating all of these events. Because this one who sits on the throne died on the cross for you. He laid down his life for your rebellion. For your self-centeredness, for your wants and desires that are centered on you and not on Jesus. And instead of pouring on you the wrath that we deserve for our sin, he took it upon himself. Turn to Jesus today. Let him be your savior. So he will not need to be your judge. Secondly, Christian, this day of wrath is coming and today is a day of grace And you and I are called to pray and to live and to witness accordingly. It seems like we've read this verse every week and we probably will read it every week. But remember, Peter just had this perspective of this that I think is so helpful for us. He said, don't overlook this fact, beloved. The day of the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises. Some count slowness. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's how we pray. We pray that before we pray those imprecatory prayers, those prayers of judgment. We pray for grace. 
But we know the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done here will be exposed. And then Peter asked us, uh, so what are we to do with this? How are we to live according to this? And we're to live lives of holiness and godliness. So, so tomorrow, I appreciate Andy Davis talking about this in a sermon he preached on this. Tomorrow, when you're at work, you, say, you know what that crazy preacher of mine said? He said that the heavens are going to dissolve. That the sun's going to not shine like it was. There's going to be earthquakes and peals of thunder and lightning. And this earth is just going to be devastated by the judgment of God that is coming on this sinful earth. You know, you know that's what he talked about. And that co-worker may say, well, do you believe that? Well, yeah, I do. And I, let me talk to you about it. Because there's a way to be safe from that. You don't have to be afraid of that. You see, there's opposition of God that comes with terrorists slicing the throats of Christians. And then there's opposition that comes just from not caring. And they're in the same boat in God's eyes. So that neighbor that you work, that you live beside, or those, those people you work with, they're marked for the same judgment. So we're to pray and we're to live and we're to witness accordingly. And then finally, thirdly, Spurgeon said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Adrian Rogers said, God delays are not God's denials. So our prayers matter, church, even if it seems like we're praying them over and over and over and over and over. God is hearing. God is moving. And God will move. So we need to be encouraged in our prayer life. I'm so thankful for Ben and, and Rick Godwin and others in our church that really sense God's prompting us as a church to be more intentional, more diligent, more disciplined in the way that we pray. And in, the, in coming together to pray. Church, I encourage you to, to move in that direction. Just let's walk in step together in that direction. And the amazing thing is that the sovereign God of the universe who has decreed and purposed all things invites us to be involved in that. Commands us, yes, and invites us. John Piper said he loves us. And he's not toying with us when he says in Romans 12, 12, be consistent, be constant in prayer. And he's not playing with us in Philippians 4, 6, when he says, let your request be made known to God. And he's not toying with us in Ephesians 6, when he says, pray at all times. Or in Colossians 4, 2, where he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, where he says, pray without ceasing. Or when Jesus says, ask and you will receive and do not lose heart. He's not playing with us. He's not toying with us. In fact, he says... He's not toying with us when he says all these things. He is granting us the dignity of joining with him in glorifying himself. Do you hear that? He's inviting us to be a part of God getting glory to himself. Oh, that'll change the way we pray, right? Let's pray now. Father, this great day is coming. In the meantime, I pray you'd fear us with a holy awe and fear of you. Help us not be comfortable with the salvation that we have. Help us constantly think about the blood of Jesus that accomplished and bought it. Turn our eyes toward this, this, this impending reality and toward the reality of those that we know and those that we don't know and of their lostness, God. Motivate us, stir us to pray, to give, to go, to invite, to welcome, to show hospitality, to talk about Jesus. 
And Father, we do pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.